0: Greater than by and large, there is no such thing as something for nothing. In the long run you get exactly that for which you pay, whether you are buying an automobile or a loaf of bread. Greater than if you can run a losing race without blaming your loss on someone else, you have bright prospects of success further down the road in life. Greater than a good encyclopedia contains most of the known facts of the world, but they are as useless as sand dunes until organized and expressed in terms of action. A definite chief A.M. The keynote of this entire lesson may be found in the word definite. It is most appalling to know that 95% of the people of the world are drifting aimlessly through life, without the slightest conception of the work for which they are best fitted, and with no conception whatsoever of even the need of such a thing as a definite objective toward which to strive. There is a psychological as well as an economic reason for the selection of a definite chief aim in life. Let us devote our attention to the psychological side of the question first. It is a well established principle of psychology that a person's acts are always in harmony with the dominating thoughts of his or her mind. Any definite chief aim that is deliberately fixed in the mind and held there, with the determination to realize it, finally saturates the entire subconscious mind until it automatically influences the physical action of the body toward the attainment of that purpose. Your definite chief aim in life should be selected with deliberate care, and after it has been selected, it should be written out and placed where you will see it at least once a day the psychological effect of which is to impress this purpose upon your subconscious mind so strongly that it accepts that purpose as a pattern or blueprint that will eventually dominate your activities in life and lead you, step by step, toward the attainment of the object back of that purpose. The principle of psychology through which you can impress your definite chief aim upon your subconscious mind is called autosuggestion, or suggestion which you repeatedly make to yourself. It is a degree of self-hypnotism, but do not be afraid of it on that account for it was this same principle through the aid of which Napoleon lifted himself from the lowly station of poverty-stricken Corsican to the dictatorship of France. It was through the aid of the same principle that Thomas A. Edison has risen from the lowly beginning of a news butcher to where he is accepted as the leading inventor of the world. It was through the aid of the same principle that Lincoln bridged the mighty chasm between his lowly birth, in a log cabin in the mountains of Kentucky, and the presidency of the greatest nation on earth. It was through the aid of the same principle that Theodore Roosevelt became one of the most aggressive leaders that ever reached the presidency of the United States. You need have no fear of the principle of auto-suggestion as long as you are sure that the objective for which you are striving is one that will bring you happiness of an enduring nature. Be sure that your definite purpose is constructive, that its attainment will bring hardship and misery to no one, that it will bring you peace and prosperity, then apply, to the limit of your understanding, the principle of self-suggestion for the speedy attainment of this purpose. On the street corner, just opposite the room in which I am writing, I see a man who stands there all day long and sells peanuts. He is busy every minute. When not actually engaged in making a sale, he is roasting and packing the peanuts in little bags. He is one of that great army constituting the 95% who have no definite purpose in life. He is selling peanuts, not because he likes that work better than anything else he might do, but because he never sat down and thought out a definite purpose that would bring him greater returns for his labor. He is selling peanuts because he is a drifter on the sea of life, and one of the tragedies of his work is the fact that the same amount of effort that he puts into it, if directed along other lines, would bring him much greater returns. Another one of the tragedies of this man's work is the fact that he is unconsciously making use of the principle of self-suggestion, but he is doing it to his own disadvantage. No doubt, if a picture could be made of his thoughts, there would be nothing in that picture except a peanut roaster, some little paper bags and a crowd of people buying peanuts. This man could get out of the peanut business if he had the vision and the ambition first to imagine himself in a more profitable calling, and the perseverance to hold that picture before his mind until it influenced him to take the necessary steps to enter a more profitable calling. He put sufficient labor into his work to bring him a substantial return if that labor were directed toward the attainment of a definite purpose that offered bigger returns. One of my closest personal friends is one of the best-known writers and public speakers of this country. About ten years ago, he caught sight of the possibilities of this principle of self suggestion and began, immediately, to harness it and put it to work. He worked out a plan for its application that proved to be very effective. At that time, he was neither a writer nor a speaker. Each night, just before going to sleep, he would shut his eyes and see, in his imagination, a long council table at which he placed, in his imagination, certain well known men whose characteristics he wished to absorb into his own personality. At the end of the table he placed Lincoln and on either side of the table he placed Napoleon Washington Emerson and Albert Hubbard He then proceeded to talk to these imaginary figures that he had seated at his imaginary council table something after this manner Mr Lincoln I desire to build in my own character those qualities of patience and fairness toward all mankind and the keen sense of humor which were your outstanding characteristics I need these qualities and I shall not be contented until I have developed them Mr Washington I desire to build in my own character those qualities of patriotism and self-sacrifice and leadership which were your outstanding characteristics. Mr. Emerson, I desire to build in my own character those qualities of vision and the ability to interpret the laws of nature as written in the rocks of prison walls and growing trees and flowing brooks and growing flowers and the faces of little children, which were your outstanding characteristics. Napoleon, I desire to build in my own character those qualities of self-reliance and the strategic ability to master obstacles and profit by mistakes and develop strength out of defeat, which were your outstanding characteristics. Mr. Hubbard, I desire to develop the ability to equal and even to excel the ability that you possessed with which to express yourself in clear, concise and forceful language. Night after night, for many months, This man saw these men seated around that imaginary council table until finally he had imprinted their outstanding characteristics upon his own subconscious mind so clearly that he began to develop a personality which was a composite of their personalities. The subconscious mind may be likened to a magnet, and when it has been vitalized and thoroughly saturated with any definite purpose, it has a decided tendency to attract all that is necessary for the fulfillment of that purpose. Like attracts, like, and you may see evidence of this law in every blade of grass and every growing tree. The acorn attracts from the soil and the air the necessary materials out of which to grow an oak tree. It never grows a tree that is part oak and part poplar. Every grain of wheat that is planted in the soil attracts the materials out of which to grow a stalk of wheat. It never makes a mistake and grows both oats and wheat on the same stalk. And men are subject, also, to this same law of attraction. Go into any cheap boarding house district in any city and there you will find people of the same general trend of mind associated together. On the other hand, Go into any prosperous community and there you will find people of the same general tendencies associated together. Men who are successful always seek the company of others who are successful, while men who are on the ragged side of life always seek the company of those who are in similar circumstances. Misery loves company. Water seeks its level with no finer certainty than man seeks the company of those who occupy his own general status financially and mentally. A professor of Yale University and an illiterate hobo have nothing in common. They would be miserable if thrown together for any great length of time. Oil and water will mix as readily as will men who have nothing in common. All of which leads up to this statement. That you will attract to you people who harmonize with your own philosophy of life, whether you wish it or not. This being true, can you not see the importance of vitalizing your mind with a definite chief aim that will attract to you people who will be of help to you and not a hindrance? Suppose your definite chief aim is far above your present station in life. What of it? It is your privilege, nay, your duty, to aim high in life. You owe to yourself and to the community in which you live to set a high standard for yourself. There is much evidence to justify the belief that nothing within reason is beyond the possibility of attainment by the man whose definite chief aim has been well developed. Some years ago Louis Victor Aydin was given a life sentence in the Arizona Penitentiary. At the time of his imprisonment he was an all-around bad man, according to his own admissions. In addition to this it was believed that he would die of tuberculosis within a year. 8 Inch had reason to feel discouraged, if anyone ever had. Public feeling against him was intense, and he did not have a single friend in the world who came forth and offered him encouragement or help. Then something happened in his own mind that gave him back his health, put the dreaded White Plague to rout, and finally unlocked the prison gates and gave him his freedom. What was that something? Just this he made up his mind to whip the White Plague and regain his health. That was a very definite chief aim. In less than a year from the time the decision was made, he had won. Then he extended that definite chief aim by making up his mind to gain his freedom. Soon the prison walls melted from around him. No undesirable environment is strong enough to hold the man or woman who understands how to apply the principle of autosuggestion in the creation of a definite chief aim. Such a person can throw off the shackles of poverty, destroy the most deadly disease germs, rise from a lowly station in life to power and plenty. All great leaders base their leadership upon a definite chief aim. Followers are willing followers when they know that their leader is a person with a definite chief aim who has the courage to back up that purpose with action. Even a balky horse knows when a driver with a definite chief aim takes hold of the reins, and yields to that driver. When a man with a definite chief aim starts through a crowd everybody stands aside and makes a way for him, but let a man hesitate and show by his actions that he is not sure which way he wants to go and the crowd will step all over his toes and refuse to budge an inch out of his way. Nowhere is the lack of a definite chief aim more noticeable or more detrimental than it is in the relationship between parent and child. Children sense very quickly the wavering attitude of their parents and take advantage of that attitude quite freely. It is the same all through life, men with a definite chief aim command respect and attention at all times. So much for the psychological viewpoint of a definite purpose. Let us now turn to the economic side of the question. If a steamship lost its rudder, in mid-ocean, and began circling around, it would soon exhaust its fuel supply without reaching shore, despite the fact that it would use up enough energy to carry it to shore and back several times. The man who labours without a definite purpose that is backed up by a definite plan for its attainment, resembles the ship that has lost its rudder. Hard labour and good intentions are not sufficient to carry a man through to success, for how may a man be sure that he has attained success unless he has established in his mind some definite object that he wishes? Every well-built house started in the form of a definite purpose plus a definite plan in the nature of a set of blueprints. Imagine what would happen if one tried to build a house by the haphazard method, without plans. Workmen would be in each other's way, building material would be piled all over the lot before the foundation was completed, and everybody on the job would have a different notion as to how the house ought to be built. Result, chaos and misunderstandings and costs that would be prohibitive. Yet had you ever stopped to think that most, people finish school, take up employment or enter a trade or profession without the slightest conception of anything that even remotely resembles a definite purpose or a definite plan. In view of the fact that science has provided reasonably accurate ways and means of analyzing character and determining the life work for which people are best fitted, does it not seem a modern tragedy that 95% of the adult population of the world is made up of men and women who are failures because they have not found their proper niches in the world's work? If success depends upon power, And if power is organized effort, and if the first step in the direction of organization is a definite purpose, then one may easily see why such a purpose is essential. Until a man selects a definite purpose in life he dissipates his energies and spreads his thoughts over so many subjects and in so many different directions that they lead not to power, but to indecision and weakness. With the aid of a small reading glass you can teach yourself a great lesson on the value of organized effort through the use of such a glass you can focus the sun rays on a definite spot so strongly that they will bum a hole through a plank. Remove the glass, which represents the definite purpose, and the same rays of Sunday may shine on that same plank for a million years without burning it. A thousand electric dry batteries, when properly organized and connected together with wires, will produce enough power to run a good-sized piece of machinery for several hours, but take those same cells singly, disconnected, and not one of them would exert. Enough energy to turn the machinery over once. The faculties of your mind might properly be likened to those dry cells. When you organize your faculties, according to the plan laid down in the 16 lessons of this reading course on the law of success, and direct them toward the attainment of a definite purpose in life, you then take advantage of the cooperative or accumulative principle out of which power is developed, which is called organized effort. Andrew Carnegie's advice was this place all your eggs in one basket and then watch the basket to see that no one kicks it over. By that advice he meant, of course, that we should not dissipate any of our energies by engaging in sidelines. Carnegie was a sound economist and he knew that most men would do well if they so harnessed and directed their energies that some one thing would be done well. When the plan back of this reading course was first born I remember taking the first manuscript to a professor of the University of Texas, and in a spirit of enthusiasm I suggested to him that I had discovered a principle that would be of aid to me in every public speech I delivered thereafter because I would be better prepared to organize and marshal my thoughts. He looked at the outline of the 15 points for a few minutes, then turned to me and said. Yes, your discovery is going to help you make better speeches, but that is not all it will do. It will help you become a more effective writer, for I have noticed in your previous writings a tendency to scatter your thoughts. For instance, if you started to describe a beautiful mountain yonder in the distance you would be apt to sidetrack your description by calling attention to a beautiful bed of wildflowers, or a running brook, or a singing bird, detouring here and there, zigzag fashion, before finally arriving at the proper point from which to view the mountain. In the future you are going to find it much less difficult to describe an object, whether you are speaking or writing, because your 15 points represent the very foundation of organization. A man who had no legs once met a man who was blind. To prove conclusively that the lame man was a man of vision he proposed to the blind man that they form an alliance that would be of great benefit to both. You let me climb upon your back, said he to the blind man, then I will use your legs and you may use my eyes. Between the two of us we will get along more rapidly. Out of allied effort comes greater power. This is a point that is worthy of much repetition, because it forms one of the most important parts of the foundation of this reading course. The great fortunes of the world have been accumulated through the use of this principle of allied effort. That which one man can accomplish single-handed, during an entire lifetime, is but meager at best, no matter how well organized that man may be, but that which one man may accomplish through the principle of alliance with other men is practically without limitation. That mastermind to which Carnegie referred during my interview with him was made up of more than a score of minds. In that group were men of practically every temperament and inclination. Each man was there to play a certain part and he did nothing else. There was perfect understanding and teamwork between these men. It was Carnegie's business to keep harmony among them. And he did it wonderfully well. If you are familiar with the game of football you know, of course, that the winning team is the one that best coordinates the efforts of its players. Teamwork is the thing that wins. It is the same in the great game of life. In your struggle for success you should keep constantly in mind the necessity of knowing what it is that you want of knowing precisely what is your definite purpose, and the value of the principle of organized effort in the attainment of that which constitutes your definite purpose. In a vague sort of way nearly everyone has a definite purpose, namely, the desire for money. But this is not a definite purpose within the meaning of the term as it is used in this lesson. Before your purpose could be considered definite, even though that purpose were the accumulation of money, You would have to reach a decision as to the precise method through which you intend to accumulate that money. It would be insufficient for you to say that you would make money by going into some sort of business. You would have to decide just what line of business. You would also have to decide just where you would locate. You would also have to decide the business policies under which you would conduct your business. In answering the question, what is your definite purpose in life? That appears in the questionnaire, which I have used for the analysis of more than 16,000 people, many answered about as follows. My definite purpose in life is to be of as much service to the world as possible and earn a good living. That answer is about as definite as a frog's conception of the size of the universe is accurate. The object of this lesson is not to inform you as to what your life work should be, for indeed this could be done with accuracy only after you had been completely analyzed, but it is intended as a means of impressing upon your mind a clear conception of the value of a definite purpose of some nature and it of the value of understanding the principle of organized effort as a means of attaining the necessary power with which to materialize your definite purpose. Careful observation of the business philosophy of more than 100 men and women who have attained outstanding success in their respective callings, disclose the fact that each was a person of prompt and definite decision. The habit of working with a definite chief aim will breed in you the habit of prompt decision, and this habit will come to your aid in all that you do. Moreover, The habit of working with a definite chief aim will help you to concentrate all your attention on any given task until you have mastered it. Concentration of effort and the habit of working with a definite chief aim are two of the essential factors in success which are always found together. One leads to the other. The best-known successful businessmen were all men of prompt decision who worked always with one main, outstanding purpose as their chief aim. Some notable examples are as follows. Woolworth chose, as his definite chief aim, the Belting of America with a chain of five and ten-cent stores, and concentrated his mind upon this one task until he made it and it made him. Wrigley concentrated his mind on the production and sale of a five-cent package of chewing gum and turned this one idea into millions of dollars. Edison concentrated upon the work of harmonizing natural laws and made his efforts uncover more useful inventions than any other man who ever lived. Henry L. Doherty concentrated upon the building and operation of public utility plants and made himself a multimillionaire. Ingersoll concentrated on a dollar watch and girdled the earth with tickers and made this one idea yield him a fortune. Statler concentrated on homelike hotel service and made himself wealthy as well as useful to millions of people who use his service. Edwin C. Barnes concentrated on the sale of Edison dictating machines and retired, while still a young man, with more money than he needs. Woodrow Wilson concentrated his mind on the White House for 25 years and became its chief tenant, thanks to his knowledge of the value of sticking to a definite chief aim. Lincoln concentrated his mind on freeing the slaves and became our greatest American president while doing it. Martin W. Littleton heard a speech which filled him with the desire to become a great lawyer, concentrated his mind on that one aim, and is now said to be the most successful lawyer in America, whose fees for a single case seldom fall below $50,000. Rockefeller concentrated on oil and became the richest man of his generation. Ford concentrated on flivvers and made himself the richest and most powerful man who ever lived. Carnegie concentrated on steel and made his efforts build a great fortune and plastered his name on public libraries throughout America. Gillette concentrated on a safety razor, gave the entire world a close shave and made himself a multimillionaire. George Eastman concentrated on the Kodak and made the idea yield him a fortune while bringing much pleasure to millions of people. Russell Conwell concentrated on one simple lecture, Acres of Diamonds, and made the idea yield more than $6 million. Hearst concentrated on sensational newspapers and made the idea worth millions of dollars. Helen Keller concentrated on learning to speak, and, despite the fact that she was deaf, dumb and blind, realized her definite chief aim. John H. Patterson concentrated on cash registers and made himself rich and others careful. The late Kaiser of Germany concentrated on war and got a big dose of it, let us not forget the fact. Fleischmann concentrated on the humble little cake of yeast and made things hump themselves all over. The world. Marshall Field concentrated on the world's greatest retail store and lo. It rose before him, a reality. Philip Armour concentrated on the butchering business and established a great industry, as well as a big fortune. Greater than anyone can start, but only the thoroughbred will finish. Millions of people are concentrating, daily, on poverty and failure and getting both in overabundance. Wright Brothers concentrated on the airplane and mastered the air. Pullman concentrated on the sleeping car and the idea made him rich and millions of people comfortable in travel. The Anti-Saloon League concentrated on the Prohibition Amendment and, whether for better or worse, made it a reality. Thus it will be seen that all who succeed work with some definite, outstanding aim as the object of their labors. There is some one thing that you can do better than anyone else in the world could do it. Search until you find out what this particular line of endeavor is, make it the object of your definite chief aim and then organize all of your forces and attack it with the belief that you are going to win. In your search for the work for which you are best fitted, it will be well if you bear in mind the fact that you will most likely attain the greatest success by finding out what work you like best, for it is a well-known fact that a man generally best succeeds in the particular line of endeavor into which he can throw his whole heart and soul. Let us go back, for the sake of clarity and emphasis, to the psychological principles upon which this lesson is founded, because it will mean a loss that you can ill afford if you fail to grasp the real reason for establishing a definite chief aim in your mind. These principles are as follows. First, every voluntary movement of the human body is caused, controlled and directed by thought, through the operation of the mind. Second, The presence of any thought or idea in your consciousness tends to produce an associated feeling and to urge you to transform that feeling into appropriate muscular action that is in perfect harmony with the nature of the thought. For example, if you think of winking your eyelid and there are no counter-influences or thoughts in your mind at the time to arrest action, the motor nerve will carry your thought from the seat of government, in your brain, and appropriate or corresponding muscular action takes place immediately. Stating this principle from another angle, you choose, for example, A definite purpose as your life work and make up your mind that you will carry out that purpose. From the very moment that you make this choice, this purpose becomes the dominating thought in your consciousness, and you are constantly on the alert for facts, information and knowledge with which to achieve that purpose. From the time that you plant a definite purpose in your mind, your mind begins, both consciously and unconsciously, to gather and store away the material with which you are to accomplish that purpose. Desire is the factor which determines what your definite purpose in life shall be. No one can select your dominating desire for you, but once you select it yourself it becomes your definite chief aim and occupies the spotlight of your mind until it is satisfied by transformation into reality, unless you permit it to be pushed aside by conflicting desires. To emphasize the principle that I am here trying to make clear, I believe it not unreasonable to suggest that to be sure of successful achievement, one's definite chief aim in life should be backed up with a burning desire for its achievement. I have noticed that boys and girls who enter college and pay their way through by working seem to get more out of their schooling than do those whose expenses are paid for them. The secret of this may be found in the fact that those who are willing to work their way through are blessed with a burning desire for education, and such a desire, if the object of the desire is within reason, is practically sure of realization. Science has established, beyond the slightest room for doubt, that through the principle of auto-suggestion any deeply rooted desire saturates the entire body and mind with the nature of the desire and literally transforms the mind into a powerful magnet that will attract the object of the desire, if it be within reason. For the enlightenment of those who might not properly interpret the meaning of this statement I will endeavor to state this principle in another way. For example, merely desiring an automobile will not cause that automobile to come rolling in, but, if there is a burning desire for an automobile, that desire will lead to the appropriate action through which an automobile may be paid for. Merely desiring freedom would never release a man who was confined in prison if it were not sufficiently strong to cause him to do something to entitle himself to freedom. These are the steps leading from desire to fulfillment, first the burning desire, then the crystallization of that desire into a definite purpose, then sufficient appropriate action to achieve that purpose. Remember that these three steps are always necessary to ensure success. I once knew a very poor girl who had a burning desire for a wealthy husband, and she finally got him, but not without having transformed that desire into the development of a very attractive personality which, in turn, attracted the desired husband. I once had a burning desire to be able to analyze character accurately, and that desire was so persistent and so deeply seated that it practically drove me into ten years of research and study of men and women. George S. Parker makes one of the best fountain pens in the world. And despite the fact that his business is conducted from the little city of Janesville, Wisconsin, he has spread his product all the way around the globe and he has his pen on sale in every civilized country in the world. More than 20 years ago, Mr. Parker's definite purpose was established in his mind, and that purpose was to produce the best fountain pen that money could buy. He backed that purpose with a burning desire for its realization and if you carry a fountain pen the chances are that you have evidence in your own possession that it has brought him abundant success. You are a contractor and builder, and, like men who build houses out of mere wood and brick and steel, you must draw up a set of plans after which to shape your success building. You are living in a wonderful age, when the materials that go into success are plentiful and cheap. You have at your disposal, in the archives of the public libraries, the carefully compiled results of 2,000 years of research covering practically every possible line of endeavor in which one would wish to engage. If you would become a preacher, you have at hand the entire history of what has been learned by men who have preceded you in this field. If you would become a mechanic, you have at hand the entire history of the inventions of machines and the discovery and usages of metals and things metallic in nature. If you would become a lawyer, you have at your disposal the entire history of law procedure. Through the Department of Agriculture, at Washington, you have at your disposal all that has been learned about farming and agriculture, where you may use it should you wish to find your life work in this field. The world was never so resplendent with opportunity as it is today. On every hand there is an ever increasing demand for the services of the man or the woman who makes a better mousetrap, or performs better stenographic service or preaches a better sermon or digs a better ditch or runs a more accommodating bank. This lesson will not be completed until you shall have made your choice as to what your definite chief aim in life is to be and then recorded a description of that purpose in writing and placed it where you may see it every morning when you arise and every night when you retire. Procrastination is but why preach about it? You know that you are the hewer of your own wood and the drawer of your own water and the shaper of your own definite chief aim in life, therefore, why dwell upon that which you already know? A definite purpose is something that you must create for yourself. No one else will create it for you and it will not create itself. What are you going to do about it? And when? And how? Greater than every line a man writes, and every act in which he indulges, and every word he utters serves as unescapable evidence of the nature of that which is deeply embedded in his own heart, a confession that he cannot disavow. Start now to analyze your desires and find out what it is that you wish, then make up your mind to get it. Lesson 3 will point out to you the next step and show you how to proceed. Nothing is left to chance, in this reading course. Every step is marked plainly. Your part is to follow the directions until you arrive at your destination, which is represented by your definite chief aim. Make that aim clear and back it up with persistence which does not recognize the word impossible. When you come to select your definite chief aim just keep in mind the fact that you cannot aim too high. Also keep in mind the never-varying truth that you'll get nowhere if you start nowhere. If your aim in life is vague your achievements will also be vague, and it might well be added, very meager. Know what you want, when you want it, why you want it and how you intend to get it. This is known to teachers and students of psychology as the www.h formula. What, when, why and how? Read this lesson four times, at intervals of one week apart. You will see much in the lesson the fourth time you read it that you did not see the first time. Your success in mastering this course and in making it bring you success will depend very largely, if not entirely, upon how well you follow all the instructions it contains. Do not set up your own rules of study. Follow those laid down in the course, as they are the result of years of thought and experimentation. If you wish to experiment wait until you master this course in the manner suggested by its author. You will then be in position to experiment more safely. For the present content yourself by being the student. You will, let us hope, become the teacher as well as the student after you have followed the course until you have mastered it. If you follow the instructions laid down in this course for the guidance of its students, you can no more fail than water can run uphill above the level of its source.